there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. and sued Union Carbide over the disaster in Bhopal, also sending shockwaves through Asia. Wham! Who were the first Western band to ever release a pop album in China? Billy Martin, evidently trapped in a revolving door, became the general manager of the Yankees for the fourth time. He would go on to be fired and rehired a grand total of 11,803 times before the end of his career. And finally, in a move that baffled industry analysts and which nearly destroyed their company. So new Coke is catching on. The taste is better and newer than... than, 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 than. You said the P word. <laughs> so what I want to know is if you're drinking Coke, who's drinking Pepsi? If you can't beat it, catch the wave. Coca-Cola announced that would be changing their trademark secret formula, rushing new Coke onto the market. It was a dark day, leaving us more dependent than ever on the movies of April of 1985. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Drew, I have a question for you. You produce the world's best-selling sugar water. I come into your office and go, let's fuck with that formula. What do you say to me, sir? Uh, Can we make it taste exactly like the other sugar water that doesn't sell as well as us? Because if so, I'm in. Whoa, what a bonehead idea. It was crazy. Um, I just remember the the moment around it being truly the end of the world for that company for a few years. I don't remember. I'm not a sugar water historian, Drew, but do you remember how long the actual New Coke campaign lasted? I think it's in two months. We're going to talk about the rollback. (laughs) Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, well, in addition to mistakes, by the way, made by Coke. Say oops upside your head. Say oops upside your head. Say a quick mistake that we made, although not really a mistake so much as I just didn't uh, give the proper name of the place. Um, yes, it's not the Toronto Tower. It's the CN Tower. I just meant the giant tower in downtown Toronto. And because I'm from out of town, I, I don't know what you guys call it. Locally, Canadians but are the, so sensitive about their landmarks. Good Lord. You're very touchy, Canucks. Um, Scott made a mention of American Greetings as the company behind Care Bears. He did not mean they were also the company behind he-Man and She-Ra, although I don't believe he named that company. That would, of course, be Mattel. You should be my um, lawyer, dude. Good job. Yeah. So Mr. Mr. Weinberg is not answering any questions at this time. I was, I was not wrong. I was half right. So there you go. There you go. And uh, now speaking of things that are not right. I would like to uh, somebody to write a play, a one-act play called James Frawley's Agent. 
And it's about a guy, one of his clients just directed the Muppet movie. James Frawley comes into his office and says, hey, uh, I directed the Muppet movie. Have you seen the Muppet movie? Which is, by the way, the Muppet movie. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I, like I, I'm not even part of the Henson team necessarily. I came in, was hired from outside to direct their big movie. Yeah, do you remember that landmark, that cultural breakthrough that happened? That movie that everybody on the planet talked about? Yeah, that was me. And, and his agent says, here's what I got for you. You want to direct... Fraternity vacation. Meet Joe. Take off his trunks. And mother. This could be interpreted as perverted behavior. And introducing. How do you do, sir? I'm Wendell Tavet. They're determined to make new friends. Hi, boys. Mind if we join you? And share a holiday adventure <laughs> they'll never forget. Some doctor thinks he's found a cure for herpes. Boy, would that be a relief? Fraternity vacation. If we had it to do over, we'd do it again. All in the National Guard. Fraternity vacation. It's the best time of the year. Man, oh man. And one of the things that I'm going to say a few times this week is it's starting to blur. These things are starting to get confusing because there's so many of them and they're so similar to one another. The only way to differentiate, one, does it look like it had a budget over... 90 grand. <laughs> okay, and this one does, to be fair, look like it had a budget over 90 grand. And then the second way is, does it have familiar faces? Tim Robbins is probably the biggest part in this who went on to much bigger things, but... Matt McCoy, who was a big sitcom guy for a while. Our beloved Barbara Crampton. John Vernon. Amanda Bierce from Married with Children, who is now a giant TV director and... It has some, you know, likable faces, but none of them are given anything funny to do. And the whole thing hinges on the charisma of Stephen Jeffries, which is a peculiar thing, to say the least. And this is that era where you could potentially make a movie star out of a Crispin Glover or Stephen Jeffries. And I think there was an attempt that during the 80s to figure those guys out, like the weirdo who could maybe carry a movie, maybe. Stephen Jeffries is half all shucks likable in this movie. He really is. It's the difference between Val Kilmer getting real genius and reading that script and going, ah, perfect. This is exactly my sense of humor and it gets to show me off. And somebody who's got a comic persona, but who gets a script that doesn't have any jokes in it. And it's like the persona isn't enough to sell it. It's the same problem I have with Bob Goldthwait and Police Academy, too. We heard from people who were like, but I love him in that one. Yeah, I like Bob, too. I don't think in the movie they give him anything. To yeah, do. I mean, all right. I don't want to jump all the way back to Police Academy, too. But Bob Goldthwaite is one of the saving graces of that series because he's like um, a wild manic flower growing out in like a field of 1930s Borscht Belt vaudeville comedy. Dice Clay did this a lot where the Dice Man is his character that moves from movie to movie. And pretty much if you cast him, you're just going to get a variation on that. And I think there were a lot of guys who kind of learned that lesson at the beginning of the 80s and then tried to ride that. And for some, it worked. For some, it didn't. Despite the fact that it does have a good cast and a director who deserves a better script, I would skip this fraternity vacation. <laughs> but I would also not like to visit our next location. This one confused me because there are two films we've got in the next couple of months that had this title at one point or another. And I got them so confused that it really it, it took me a while to get my head around which one was actually released as Hellhole. Your worst nightmare is a fantasy come true for the doctors of Hellhole. We put you here and we'll keep you here until you die. Hellhole. When you're taken here, everything is taken from you body oh, goody. and mind be glad you're only watching it and not living it. 
hellhole. Hellhole! It's about a woman whose mom is killed, and so she gets amnesia and ends up in a woman's prison. Oh, but not just killed, but murdered by Ray Sharkey swinging for the fences as a bad guy named Silk. I'm not sorry I saw it because now I've seen that Ray Sharkey performance and man, it is (laughs) talk about a guy who is devoted to getting something across on screen. It's not good, but it is not boring. Mary Waranov is even in the silliest, campiest crap. She knows exactly what what tone to pitch. Her and um, Marjo Gortner as her cohort who are conducting brain experiments on people It's ridiculous and they know it's ridiculous. And so they are chewing scenery. Her assistant bad guy played by Robert Zadar. That guy is always so visually arresting. Uh, Judy Landers as a lead. What do you think? There's no nice way to say this. Judy Landers feels like a permanent television guest star. So it never feels like you're watching a real movie. Every time I see Judy Landers, I feel like I'm watching the fifth build guest on the love boat. Yeah. You don't feel like you're watching the A storyline of the movie you're actually watching. (laughs) Or the love boat. The next one we're going to cover is called Prime Risk. It's a thriller about the burgeoning technology known as automatic tellers. (laughs) Yeah, this is war games for ATMs. She's the electronic whiz. He's the guy who does the dirty work. You're going to rip off the teller? We can do it. We? The world's got just 24 hours, and only two kids can avert disaster. Prime Risk. It makes war games kid stuff. And they diss war games in the trailer. It's very clear what they're aiming for. And it's very clear that they think they got there, <laughs> which which they did not. So it's about a girl who is stealing from ATMs with like parabolic technology and whatnot. It's a Canadian film, by the way. It is very much a Canadian thriller with all that that implies. Very mild mannered. They take a bus to get there. It's not there's no urgency to any of the world ending uh, conspiracies that they're on. It is a afternoon out rather than an adventure movie. Drew, um, where would you uh, rank this on the filmography of Michael Farkas? <laughs> <laughs> Very, very high. I couldn't do it without. All right. Now, here's uh, uh, like one of the fun things about us doing the show is, oh, I've seen him or her in like 12 different things. And I never put a face to the name. Tony Hudson, not necessarily a a Meryl Streep, but I I wish that I had seen her in more because if I had seen her in more, she probably would have blossomed into a better actor. But she's very likable and feels like if this had been an actual Hollywood movie. She probably would have done five or six other things during the decade and and figured out if she was going to stay in movies or not. Yeah, we'll we'll get to her in another movie in this episode, but you might remember her face from Young Doctors in Love, Cross Creek, and Places in the Heart, Tony Hudson. Oh, Drew, very rarely we each have a tap-out movie, and I'm going to freely admit I tapped out after about 60 minutes of... It's a party. It's a contest. It's an event. It's a riot! It's Delivery Boys! An American tradition gone absolutely wild! How are you gonna keep me against my will? I won't. In fact, the door won't even be locked. Delivery Boys, rated R. You and I tapped out almost to the same moment. 
and I'm wondering if it's because we just plain ran out of gas on this the way the movie does. This is one of those movies that is so profoundly ugly visually. It's a challenge to sit through it. It doesn't feel like you're watching a film. Drew and I are pleasantly surprised by how stuff like Breaking 2 holds up, right? Yeah. Go watch Delivery Boys. And then Breaking 2 feels like Busby Berkeley. I'll say this. I've given trauma shit in the past for how trauma looks like it smells bad. And I still feel that way. But at least with trauma, I do get the feeling that a lot of times the people that get their hands on the camera know that this is an opportunity and you should make the most of it that you can. And there's energy and there is what whatever. I may not like the final result, but I don't believe that it's a cynical product. Delivery Boys to me feels like cynical awful nobody cared and it's a breakdancing movie where nothing good happened i cannot wait till we get to very peebles in rapping because that's a good movie all right drew let's get down to another canadian you know what thank you canada thank you for all these great movies it's the last day of vacation and she's got 24 hours to change her life my hormones are boiling over on a dopey city meet debbie before meet debbie after. What did your mother say? She mumbled something about God and then she fainted. Take the plunge. They wouldn't want my first time ruined by an amateur. Fall head over heels. Breaking all the rules. Breaking all the rules. Ready to die. I want to watch a 90 minute movie about two obnoxious horny assholes wandering through an amusement park. <laughs> Trying to get with two cool girls who are much more interesting than the two lead characters. Oh, but also there's like a valuable gem hidden inside of a doll. Okay, here's a confession. I, for the entire time this movie has existed, I thought Melanie Griffith was in it. If you look at the cover of this thing, it looks to me like Melanie Griffith from Something Wild or from Body Double. And I think I always thought it was. So when I put this thing on and started it, I was waiting for Melanie Griffith to appear. And then when the lead actress, Carolyn Dunn, appeared, I was like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I think I had this wrong. You know, I don't even want to call it like teen empowerment. It's just like a teen uh, wish fulfillment movie where it's like we're going to we're going to save the day from these Scooby Doo level villains. And it's if you have like an effect, a nostalgic affection for this movie because you saw it on HBO when you were 13. I get it. It's not atrocious. Well, the guy who wrote and directed it, James Orr, you know, from later work, definitely three minute a baby. He was a touchstone giant. And I think, you know, him coming out of Toronto and, and this being his sort of training ground, it already definitely has all the, the markings of the kind of high concept stuff he did, which is it's a real basic idea. He executes it right down the middle. He's not going to surprise you or blow your mind, but it's pretty much what they're advertising. So I was struck about an hour in where I was like, you know, they could have just as easily said, you know what, let's launch this up. And I think Carolyn Dunn, the actress who I had this mistaken idea about all these years, I think she's pretty good in it. She's got this this crazy energy when it tries to be just like a two headed like flirt fest where they're like the girls are leading them on, but the girls kind of like them. And then the boys are like following the girls, but then they don't. Oh, we'll just go off and do our own thing because we're dudes. That stuff is fine. It's amiable. It's not funny, but it's watchable. And then the stupid, ridiculous heist stuff gets involved. And I was glad when it was over. It's 93 minutes long. It's called Breaking All the Rules. What else do you want to know? The rules have been broken. Uh, This next one marks a demarcation line between New World Pictures and Concord Pictures. But let's be honest, it was business as usual on both sides of that equation for Roger Corman, who kicked off his new company with Barbarian Queen. (laughs) 
Clark sacked her village, violated her sister, took her most precious possession. I'm going to get it back. Flanked by ravishing winning warriors. Burning with insatiable battle lust, this she-devil strikes back. No man can touch her naked steel. No man can shatter her secret shield. Barbarian Queen. Kyra from Deathstalker, different character, but she is now back and she is the Barbarian Queen. This is shot in Argentina and it's still ripping off the very basic, well, let's just call it the Conan the Barbarian template in which a village is ransacked and a hero or two are, are left for dead and then several years later come back and exact justice, a.k.a. revenge with some sidekicks, most of whom die. Pretty basic, pretty dull. I didn't hate it. It's not the worst of this level, but it's Barbarian Queen. It is largely notable for the uh, the lead performance by Lana Clarkson, who unfortunately um, was shot by Phil Spector later, and that is what most people knew her for first. Uh, she was an actor in a lot of B-movies, and I think this is one of those examples, if you look at this, Lana Clarkson was a really engaging actress who probably could have done more. I like the fact that because it's Argentinian, it doesn't feel like it's the same five stuntmen that have done 50 of these things. There is a crazy death late in this movie that is one of those moments where even if the rest of the movie is totally forgettable, I've never seen one thing that happens in this film before. <laughs> these kind of Z-grade sword and sorcery movies raise an interesting question, Drew. When did you start noticing the difference between location? Because Italy and Argentina don't look alike, but as a kid... 15 years old, I wouldn't have been able to. When I was really young, I didn't really get that the spaghetti westerns, why they were spaghetti westerns. I didn't get that they were Spain and Italy and that's where they were shot. I thought they were just like American westerns that had those actors for some reason. I really didn't grasp until later that when you look at that landscape, their version of the American West is really not the American West. And it's one of the reasons Leone's movies almost feel hallucinatory is because that's not the way America looks. Um, and I like the fact that Argentina in this doesn't look like the 30 other Conan ripoffs we've sat through already. It kind of has its own vibe and it does feel different. So um, I appreciate it now. You're right. It didn't pick it up really as a kid. Let's move on, Drew. Um, our next film, I tweeted to one of the cast members of it because I didn't realize the cast member of it until uh, this viewing. And sure enough, in one quick moment, there's Don Cheadle in his film debut as a cast member in moving violations you will not get your licenses back until you pass this course in our traffic school never be able to make it none of them will you think we're finished washed up history well i've got news for you it's not over till it's over <laughs> But worst of all, you have no respect for authority. Moving violations. If I were you, I'd get used to public transportation. You, in particular, have waxed on and on about how underrated and underappreciated and how great an actor Brian Doyle Murray is, correct? Yes, yes. So... Then John Murray is the diametric opposite of Brian Doyle Murray. John, John Murray is like if they took Jim Belushi and they put him in an orange press. And this is the pulp that's left after you got the juice out. 
And it's like this whole movie was cast with, well, we can't get Bill Murray, but there's a John Murray. And, you know, Meg Tilly's busy, but we're pretty sure Jennifer Tilly's not. Stacy Stacy Keach's brother. You're right. They got James Keach because Stacy Keach was busy. And the whole movie feels like that. And look, I think... James Keach has done perfectly lovely things in other places. Not I think, here. Not yeah, here. I think Jennifer Tilly is actually a really nimble comic actor later. Fred Willard gets a couple of funny bits and, and oh, the Dude, wonderful. this is a movie that strands Wendy Jo Sperber. If you do that, there's no excuse because she's genuinely one of our gifts in she comic cinema. She is the victim of a really elaborate and very silly, uh, she mistakes a mechanic for a doctor and, and she's just all. I do feel like this movie only exists for that line on the poster from the creators of Police Academy. That's literally it. That's the only reason that it exists. It's Police Academy in traffic school because they're bad drivers. Talk about low stakes. Seriously, there are zero stakes for this film that's that's as low stakes as you could possibly go for a movie it's driving school uh, brian backer who we loved in like fast times god nobody found anything good for him to do ever beyond that no clara peller this is the where's the beef lady she is 80s royalty motherfucker don't even well, you know what's crazy about that though is they ma- she's on the poster they make a big deal out of that and she was in the ads and if you remember the TV commercials for this thing holy shit did they hammer the idea that they had the where's the beef lady in the movie because oh that's going to be hilarious except the where's the beef lady isn't the lady that has any of the jokes in that storyline it's the other little old lady Nedra Vols who is a she's the funniest thing in the film you don't know her name you look at that face and you go oh her. And you know that she's made you laugh 50 times she at least. She is immortal. This is like the bane of a, of a character actor or an aspiring actor like Don Cheadle. Because if you did a play and it was something this broad and dumb and sloppily written, you, you'd get paid, you'd get a credit on your CV, and nobody would ever <laughs> say it. You'd be like, oh, I did a co- oh, I did a stage play in Brooklyn with, uh, with, with John Murray and Jennifer Tilly, and, and nobody went to see it, but it helped me get other jobs. If you're a film actor, that awful stage play is now immortalized forever, and this movie sucks. Yeah. There's, a, there's an interview... Neil Israel, the writer-director of the movie, gave where he was talking about the fact that this came out of a real experience. He really went to traffic school, and so did Joe Roth, the film's producer. And he gives this elaborate story about how they both had to go to traffic school, and they decided, oh, my God, there's a movie in this. But the rest of the interview, as he goes on to say, then I interviewed some people about traffic school, and there wasn't one interesting thing about it, so we just made a bunch of stuff up. Dude, that should have been your warning sign. Drew, remember that time you picked me up at the airport in L.A. and we got stuck in traffic for like a half an hour? Yeah, let's make a comedy out of that. There's a movie there, <laughs> right? That time, no. you, no, the, that time you had to go to the DMV and I waited in the car while you got your license renewed? There, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a movie there. And, you know, I often say that if you have, you know, a, a warm affection for a bad old movie, that's great. Enjoy that nostalgic feeling. If you have one for this movie, mm, I don't know, man. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe leave it in the past. Um, yikes. Um, I really had no idea what this next one was. And uh, I was surprised. I got to admit when the opening credits played and directed by Louis Mull came up because I thought I was familiar with all of his work. But Alamo Bay was brand new to me. My boy fought the VC over there. Now they're right here in Texas taking the bread out of our mouth. We defend everybody all over the world, but there's no protection for any American. We just want to have a chance to make our living to be Americans. That's my fault! And, and bring us! Big men 
picking on a kid? Why are you sticking up for these people? Here in Texas, tensions continue to mount between Anglo fishermen and Vietnamese refugees along the Gulf Coast. Alamo Bay, a new film by Louis Malle. Yeah, uh, and if you want to continue watching the evolution of the fascinating and lovable Amy Madigan and Ed Harris, this is a key step on that on that path. They had worked together in Places in the Heart. This is written by Alice Arlen, who is one of the writers on Silkwood. It is an earnest, straightforward melodrama about Texas fishermen in the late 70s who butt heads with the immigrant Vietnamese fishermen. It uh, feels like it was stripped right out of a newspaper headline like the Places in the Heart and the Country thing from a couple of years ago. I don't think that Louis Mal brings much to it. Yeah, it's weird because I think there are films of his that feel like they're very personally felt. Alamo Bay feels like a movie where he wanted to deeply feel it. It's not bad. It feels kind of timely right now. It's very clear. America's always had a problem with immigrants. And as soon as we solve our problem with immigrants, there's new immigrants. So somebody else gets to be the shit on the bottom of the thing. And then it starts again. And so in this particular case, it's Vietnamese immigrants in a small Texas shrimping community. And yeah, it's the Klan pushing back against them. And I was surprised how openly they they deal with the, the Klan being an active influence in the town. But I feel like the whole film really exists for one image. And it's that scene on the boat near the end. Ed Harris has the rifle and the kids on the other boat and Amy Madigan gets behind him. Like, if you shoot him, you're going to shoot me. And I feel like the whole movie comes down to that, which is a woman who desperately wants to do the right thing, who cares about a man who is violently opposed to doing the right thing. And can there be a middle ground between them? So I get why they would want to do it. And I I think they, they have some interesting chemistry in it. But I don't know that the movie ever quite lands all those punches. I'm glad I finally saw it, um, but it's not one of the Louis Maul films I think I'll ever probably go back to. Just like those Texas fishermen wanted justice, you know what girls just wanted? The music, the movie. Let's do it. Girls just want to have fun. It's interesting because it has a lot of familiar faces who all look very young and baby-faced, and therefore it is fun to see Sarah Jessica Parker and Jonathan Silverman and Helen Hunt, and they're all they're all perfectly good in the movie. It just again, it feels like one of those '80s movies that was written by somebody who was trying to write a '50s movie. In the '80s, is that what like these writers thought that a kid wanted? All I want to do is be on dance TV, make out with a hunk, and what is? I that? don't really remember having that. I don't. American Bandstand and Soul Train were on TV through the 70s and in I think into the early 80s. I think American Bandstand was still on. I think Soul Train was still on. It wasn't like the cultural phenomenon or the sensation that it once was where when you see Hairspray, it's such a perfect encapsulation of what the world was at that moment. And the idea of being on that dance show really did feel revolutionary for that character. This feels oddly out of place, like you said. It doesn't really feel like the 80s that I remember I don't know anybody that would have wanted to be on a dance show like this, maybe MTV, but not this. It feels like a movie that's like missing the hook, which is 
an 80s girl got conked on the head and fell asleep and this was her 50s dream or something <laughs> you know it's like, yeah. I, it doesn't feel the the dancing is uh you know this is a real big thing for me if you're gonna have a movie about dancing some of the dancing better be pretty good and i say this these kids are good at what they're doing I don't think the movie's terribly interested in the dancing. I would say if I was writing a review, I would say the level of dancing in this film is they can dance better than I can. And it's got the same problem that um, any movie that used this song had in this era, which is for whatever reason, nobody used the Cindy Lauper version in any of these films. What do you mean? You, you know exactly the reason. Well, I get that it's money, but if your movie is called Girls Just Want to Have Fun, maybe pony up. Uh, reportedly, Cindy Lauper was none too pleased with the film. She didn't like it very much at all. A title that is remarkably close to our last title. From girls who just want to have fun to girls who just want to be one of the guys. Terry thought it was tough to be a girl. Sometimes I just wish I were a guy. But, you know, the male body needs sex at all times. Until she tried life as a guy. How do I look? Dash. My zipper's open. That was the dashing part. What a fox. I'm gonna get him. Now, she's just one of the guys. She's confused. Of course you're confused. You're wearing my underwear. From Columbia Pictures, rated PG-13. Do you consider this a teen sex comedy? I don't know if I do or not. Yes, because of the brother. Yeah, I guess I guess he is obsessed with it. And he's a major character, and all he wants to do is get laid. It's like how we uh, designate horror. Some horror movies are dumb and gory and stupid, and they're fine with that. Some are quote unquote elevated. So the point is, if like Fraternity Vacation is low end of the teen sex comedy, then in some ways, just one of the guys is like you know a, a B plus on that scale. It has half a brain about social issues and sexual politics, and it's a pretty familiar form. The Twelfth Night sort of riff where whether it's Tootsie or Victor Victoria in pretty familiar form. I think this one benefits a lot from Joyce Heiser. She works really hard to sell the persona, the guy persona that she plays. And more than anything, she reminds me of Damone in um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I buy it. She's a high school student who believes that sexism is getting in the way of her getting a fair opportunity as a journalist. She's angry about it and decides that she's going to go to a different high school, pose as a boy, and see if uh, the grass is greener on the other side. Tony Hudson. She's back in another movie this mm -hmm. month. That's her best friend. And she's yep. one of the m most likable things. And boy, when, they, when the bad guy arrives, you know it because it's William Zabka. That's the thing. The movie doesn't really take any any difficult shots. It doesn't ask any tough questions. It sets everything up pretty broadly up front so that Terry's 100% right, except in the places where she hurt somebody's feelings, and then she learns her lesson. But it's really, it, it's a very easy lesson that is learned in this movie. Right. I, I give this movie some credit for having the one-two punch of 80s movies dickheads because Billy Zabka is just like the school bully. He's a one note bully. He's not really the main villain of the piece. The main villain of the police is the hatefully handsome Leigh McCluskey. Just so one note sexist, one note misogynist. He's, there's no layers to him. He's just like you wonder why she was dating him in the first place. What what happened before this movie where he was acceptable? She's mature enough to know the difference between. I might be losing opportunities due to um, institutionalized sexism. She's also going to be advanced enough to never date a guy who says, well, screw reporting. You could be a model. She wouldn't be with that guy. Sherilyn uh, Finn in this movie, uh, good, good comic performance. She's the, the girl that has the crush on the guy version of Terry as soon as she sees him. And she's determined that she's going to win him over. And it's it's great. It's basically the George Gaines role from Tootsie, but played by 
you know, 15 year old Sherilyn Finn, which is hilarious. It's got a, a, an early performance by R.E. Gross, who uh, everybody knows. Everybody likes that guy. But it's one of those movies that has a weird hostility towards uh, nerds. Sometimes the movies like kind of like nerds, they kind of ignore nerds. And then there are occasionally teen sex comedies that are outright mean to nerds. Here's here's how you know this movie doesn't have any patience with that is Clayton Roner, who plays the guy who Terry ends up really falling for. Billy Zabk is picking on him when we first meet him. The way John Hughes would write this role, he would be the nerd who Terry would realize, oh, my God, I've been trying to go out with alpha males. This guy's awesome. Why am I not dating this guy who's a nerd and it doesn't matter? And he's cool with it. That's the thing. He's like a confident nerd. But what this movie does instead is Terry realizes he's cool but doesn't know he's cool yet. So let me just let him know he's cool. They can't have him be a nerd. He's got to be secretly cool, but unaware he's cool. It's the equivalent of the bad screenwriting where somebody writes, she's beautiful, but doesn't know it yet. I like that the teen sex comedies that happen to be directed by women seem to have an extra layer of humanity to them. I was surprised, and I still can't believe they got away with it with the PG-13, that his room is wallpapered in Playboy centerfolds and... I get that it's a PG-13 movie and they're not actual characters in the film. It's still an awful lot of visual confrontation when you're watching this you film. Would no- nowadays, you would never <laughs> see a PG-13 film in which a kid's wall is coated <laughs> with fully visible Playboy centerfolds. No, no, you would not. I think there's a, there's a confidence here. The film was uh, written by two guys and directed by Lisa Gottlieb. If we were to do a chart, you know, ranking, let's say the top, 50 teen sex comedies i think the top 10 or 15 would be half women we're shifting gears here because this next one is a wild weird strange little movie that came early in a career and i can't wait to hear what you make of the company of wolves there is something happening in the woods no man can explain for it is here beneath the souls of men that the passions of the beast run wild here that the childish fantasies of innocence come face to face with the nightmare of unrelenting evil. The company of wolves. The fairy tale ends when the wolves come out. The company of wolves. Rated R. It's based on the work of Angela Carter, who's a, a, a writer and a poet, and her work is very strange. And uh, there's really no question that this is about the idea of the fairy tale as sexual archetype, the dangers in the woods and what that really means and what it's about between men and women. And the entire thing is meant to be somebody wrestling with sexual imagery and with people in their lives and with certain ideas through a fairy tale filter. And, uh, you know, and in that way, it reminds me a lot of like Alan Moore's work, um, especially stuff like Lost Girls, the more more esoteric end of things. Uh, Watching this, especially the first half of the film, I couldn't help but think that this is a gender flip version of Ridley Scott's legend. Uh, it, It really strips it down to the naked idea of the wolf being male sexuality in all its various forms, whether it's the man who comes into town and is a foreigner and sleeps with someone and then leaves her pregnant, like in the first story where that idea she's of loose character and, and she's got a child that nobody knows where it came from. That would be very damaging. And so these fairy tales are warnings. Don't do this because this might happen. 
but it takes it to that weird horror extreme where what she's carrying is something else. And the, the guy that was, that came from the woods, wasn't a guy. It was a wolf. It was an actual beast. And so each of these stories I think is really just about the various fears and the various ways they manifest. And that's why you see the same cast playing like four different variations on a roll through the different stories is it's all just meant to be her wrestling with these feelings and fears. Uh, I don't think it was meant to be cut like an anthology, but it almost plays that way. If you approach the company of wolves as a film that turned out to be an anthology and you're expecting an episodic nature, I think you'll like it a lot more. It is kind of a fever dream if you're looking at it as a 90 minute narrative. And I think each of the stories definitely has its beginning and end. I think the one that's probably most successful within the, the stories within the story is the one about the, um, the feast where everybody eventually gets transformed into uh, beasts after the wedding feast. And that one's pretty nightmarish and it plays out as kind of a morality fable about people from the villages being done wrong by the rich. It is definitely, I think, a a very strange stripped down take on what these fairy tale stories were trying to communicate, what they could communicate Versus the the basic, you know, don't go in the woods because there's a, a monster. This is Neil Jordan, his second film. So he's infinitely more confident and definitely has more money than he did. I will say that, man, you talk about production design and stretching the dollar. Anton first, man. Early Anton first. Yep. And this thing, I think it cost like 14 cents, but they spent to try to make it work. And I would definitely recommend it to horror fans or people who uh, are interested in maybe the more adult themes that are prevalent in uh, fairy tales. It has one of the weirder werewolf transformations of the 80s. And this is an era where, of course, we're, we're all fascinated by like what you can do with bladder effects and makeup effects. And their version of what the transformations look like is really intriguing and strange. And I don't know if it's totally realistic in terms of like me buying the whole effect, but I love the idea of it. Uh, you know what else is super bizarre and strange to look at? And I can't believe I watched it. Uh, would that be Charles Durning in our next film? Burt Reynolds is stick. He was an ex-con trying to go straight. Until the mob murdered his best friend. Now he's finding it difficult. Why don't you push real hard? You might hit the water. To stick to the rules. Be drinking. That regular or Ethel? Ethel. Now say goodnight. Stick. Rated R. It's a big swing. And it's a big miss. Um, And part of it is that I think Bert at this point was starting to coast as an actor. Stick has got to be a guy who you believe at every moment can handle the situation, is three steps ahead of everybody in the room. It's one of those characters, man. It's one of those iconic, tough guy, slickster characters who thinks his way through a film and the joy of it should be, you know he's going to land on his feet no matter what happens, no matter what character shows up, no matter what crap they throw at him. And the more colorful the character who shows up, the more intriguing and interesting and fun it's going to be. And that's what the book reads like. Drew, let me ask you this. Burt Reynolds as a director, go. I, I, I wish I had good things to say. Burt is not Clint Eastwood. Burt is a guy who I think saw what the gig was, thought it was an easy gig, didn't really understand that it's not just traffic cop, that it's not just show up, point the camera, go, that there is more to it, that the great films he's in are great because the filmmakers did more. They weren't just there to to keep you in front of the camera. And 
there's some missing ingredient in Bert as a director that never crystallizes. There's not one of his movies that I really love. (laughs) The thing he interjected into this movie was the immortal, brilliant Charles Durning. And he got Charles Durning and he said, hey, buddy, I'm glad you're in my movie. We did Bessel Warehouse in Texas. We're old colleagues. Great to put you in my movie. Now here, I'm going to give you bright orange giant eyebrows. I'm going to put you in a Hawaiian shirt and I'm going to make you yell and scream the most hateful, ugly things. They gave Charles Durning like the Steve Buscemi role. There's plenty of color like that in Leonard's work, but it's the difference between writing it and seeing it and writing it and bringing it to life and playing a hateful character. I don't have a problem with an actor being cast as a hateful, horrible human being, but that character then has to be interesting and compelling and it has to work. He's so laughable. He's never intimidating. It feels no, like he's not. It doesn't. Uh, it, you know it, what else it, drew? It, Talk about the late, great Dar Robinson. This is the the one case where Dar Robinson ends up on screen as a major character throughout the entire film. And he plays this albino hitman. I get the idea of what visually you're going to try and do and you're going to try and make him arresting. But he's sillier than the foul play version of that character. (laughs) And in foul play, it's a joke. So in this movie, it's really a joke and never works. Cool stunt at the end. Great stunt at the end, frankly. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting to see Dar Robinson with actual dialogue. That was those. Yeah. I actually would have liked to have seen Dar Robinson do more acting. Never heard a bad word about him and heard that he was charismatic and fun. So it would have been cool to have a director kind of figure out how to cast that guy on screen and really capture that. So the studio hated the first cut. Uh, Reynolds reshot it. Uh, and then Elmore Leonard, who, who not only is his book, but he co-wrote the script. Apparently, he hated the cut that Universal put out. This was just a debacle for all involved. One of the weirdest things about this is that it derailed Elmore Leonard's film career early. Like he he was starting to heat up. People were starting to get excited about, oh, the, there's there's a ton of material here to adapt. And there's probably a whole bunch of these. I really think this damaged him until maybe Get Shorty. I think Get Shorty might have been the rebirth of people realizing, oh, you can do Elmore Leonard right. And then after that, we started to see them again. And to me, that's one of the big crimes of this movie is, you know, who knows how many cool Elmore Leonard movies we didn't get to see because this one just belly up didn't work. And we talk about brands that started to take a hit. Elmore Leonard, I think that one dented. Our next film, let's talk about if we think it did good things or bad things for the brand of one Stephen King with the movie Cat's Eye. Stephen King, master of modern horror, has written his first movie. As usual, it contains lovable pets, classic cars, adorable kids, and of course, a monster or two. Stephen King's Cat's Eye, rated PG-13. Is this a step up from Firestarter? Yes. Okay. I was fully invested at this point because this is when I was really in love with the books and really in love with King. And I love the fact that the films had such a great pedigree. And a bad Stephen King movie to me was a big deal at that point. I was not ready for people to treat his work badly on film. So I felt very protective. And any movie that came out that had his name on it, I definitely wanted to check out and I wanted to make sure, okay, this is good. All right. Okay, cool. All right. Do you remember back in the day being disappointed that this was a PG-13 film or not? Because I don't remember feeling that I way. don't think I was disappointed. I And having read the stories that they were adapting, I don't feel like they had to compromise. I feel like Quitters Incorporated and The Ledge are 
there's nothing you had to lose to make them work in PG-13. I I guess we came from an era where PG was fine. You There were PG movies that would mess you up, dude. I call it creep show light. That's what I call Cat's Eye. I like it. I like that. Drew, let's go through each individual story. The underrated Louis Teague directed all three. The, the story has a wraparound that I love, which is about a kitty cat that's wandering all over the place. And we're just following where this uh, homeless kitty cat is going. And it turns out that it goes somewhere important in Act 3. At the, at the beginning, it just kind of runs past some Easter eggs. That was a, that was an early example of, you know, something that if you were a King fan, you noticed that in the books he had started to tie them together. And that there was a definite leaning towards, oh, OK, he's building a world. In Cat's Eye, there are visual cues to Christine and Cujo, at least. Right. And right up front. So you go, oh, OK. All right. So let's move to story one in which a smoker uh, hires a scary corporation to keep him from smoking. And I have a problem with this this short because it puts a cat in like a fucking shock cage and makes the cat jump. And I, I don't like it. Don't put a cat or a dog in an electric box for your fucking movie. Don't put somebody's kid in there either. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I think it's a decent segment. I think James Woods is good in it. I think uh, Alan King is pretty good in it. Yeah, Alan King is biting into it like, you know, like Richard Dawson in Running Man. He's he's enjoying it. I think it's a one note joke, though, and that's my biggest problem with Quitters Inc. is it's pretty one note and then it's just escalating the note. All right. And uh, the next story uh, features some actors you and I really love, not just Kenneth McMillan and Robert Hayes, but uh, Candy Clark as well. I flat out, I love The Ledge. I think The Ledge is a great adaptation of King's work. And I think it respects the fact that the short story has no fat on it. So it just moves. Like, think of this, Drew. Someone hires you and says, uh, we want this to be feature length, 112 minutes. You'd be like, oh, God, I'll take the job, but good God. And you know you know they tried. You know that conversation probably happened. But it's so much smarter to do it this way because then you get to keep the tension tight. You're not dragging out the ridiculous. The set is as good as it needs to be. And Robert Hayes is the right guy for this. Yeah, and it, this was a nice get for him. He's the cheater. He's a, he's a jerk. He's just enough of a jerk that you go, you probably should be on the ledge, but you shouldn't die. Right. Like, you, you've done something <laughs> shitty. We disapprove. Shame on you. But you know what? You don't deserve this. <laughs> yeah. And how much fun is Kenneth McMillan having, man? Oh, and Kenneth McMillan is he this is when Kenneth McMillan had kind of hit a little villain phase here. And um, nobody licked his chops quite the way Kenneth McMillan did when he got to be a piece of shit to people. Okay, and then we move to uh, story number three, which is Drew Barrymore in probably her final, like, true kid performance, right? Yeah, and I don't get this one. This was always my stumbling block with Cat's Eye, that the two that were adapted worked really well, and they were road-tested short stories. They worked in print, and they work on film. And it's not like he didn't have a thousand other shorts to choose from. I know, and the general, to me, just doesn't make sense as a story. It's fine, I guess. I mean, the cat fights a troll, and... Okay, there's no twist. There's no real clever point to it. There's a troll and there's a little girl and there's a cat. And it comes a couple of times and the cat fights it a couple of times. Then that's the end. Yo, there's some pretty decent effects in that sequence, man. There's a couple of shots where they combine like miniatures of the troll with the rear projection from the cat. And it's like legitimately impressive. Like I said, I just don't think there's much to the story. And that's kind of the biggest problem because it's the biggest segment by far. So, Scott, if this episode has had any theme, it has been the theme of movies that are almost good, almost what they're being sold as. And I think this episode culminates in one of the great almosts of the 80s, a movie that I find deeply frustrating because of how 
almost good it is. Lady Hawk, a magical, fun-filled adventure unlike any you have ever seen. It's a dazzling, romantic, daring, and different kind of movie. I do not believe what I believe, Lord. These are magical, unexplainable matters, and I beg you not to make me a part of them. Matthew Broderick in Lady Hawk, rated PG-13. I think it's a good movie, despite a key component. I think Lady Hawk has, at its heart, a great premise. Well, we open with a very funny Matthew Broderick, who is a thief. He's escaping from prison. He, no prison can hold him. He's a like Neil Simon character in medieval setting. He comes across Rucker Howard, the former captain of the guard in this kingdom, who is disgraced and hated by the villainous bishop. And it turns out that Rucker Howard and his lady love, as played by the wonderful Michelle Pfeiffer, are both victims of a curse, Drew. Why don't you explain what the curse does? And the curse to me is the movie. And the curse is the bishop loved her, couldn't have her, was determined to drive them apart, but couldn't kill them. So he cursed them to be eternally apart and together in that they are always traveling together. But by day, he is in human form and she is a hawk. And at night, he is a wolf and she is a woman. And they never have a moment where they are both human together. And so... That's the curse that keeps them apart, that they're looking to break. And the movie's about realizing what the answer to that is and what role Matthew Broderick plays in it and making the curse finally break. Okay, I love all of that as an idea. The mechanics of it... Uh, The movie spends a lot of time, Matthew Broderick, being bewildered by shit that he should clearly have figured out by now. And, you know, you end up with a lot of narrative wheel spinning when that happens. When you're like, dude, how have you not figured it out by now? Come on. (laughs) Well, Leo McCurran basically plays Father Exposition, who shows up late in the film to tell you exactly what has to happen in Act 3, because there's no other way you would learn it. The wrong character is the lead. Matthew Broderick's not your lead. I think Rucker Howard and Michelle Pfeiffer have to be your leads in this movie. See, I don't know if I agree, because... The movie wants to get that duality of how Rucker Hauer is not the dominant. Michelle Pfeiffer is not the dominant. They are both equally cursed. So they need this mid, this midpoint character on which to balance those two plates. But you could have had Leo McKern play that character and his guilt over having played a role in the curse having happened to them is what keeps him at that midpoint taking care of both of them, making sure they're okay, and constantly trying to work to undo what he did. Matthew Roderick's character feels like this weird concession to the modern audience where they're almost afraid to simply do the classic fairy tale that they're telling, and they have to have a guy over here making fun of it and sort of not taking it seriously. And there's moments where he's talking directly to the camera almost, where he's Ferris Bueller, essentially, And I get that part of that is because by this point, he had already played Brighton Beach Memoirs on stage. That's what made him famous. And that's where he started getting all the film work. So he had become famous playing a role where he basically turned to the camera and went, all right, everybody, here's what's up. That's why Ferris Bueller happened. That's why this happened. That's why he was that archetype for casting directors at that moment. So I get what they wanted it to be. I find this interesting because it's an early Lauren Schuler film. Before she's Lauren Schuler Donner. I was just going to get into that and ask you, do you think that this movie being kind of like a big, fat, old fashioned hug of a quaint adventure movie is in response to Richard Donner just coming off the toy? I do think she's a really interesting producer apart from her partnership with Richard. I think she had a pretty interesting identity that she was building. She was trying to figure out who she was as a producer. And 
Mr. Mom and Lady Hawk and Animals Fire and Pretty in Pink, that first batch of stuff that she was producing, she had a very strong signature that she was trying to get into these movies. I think what made Richard Donner interesting at this point was that he had done a little bit of everything. And because he came out of that TV world and because he wasn't precious about what his identity was, I think he was open to trying almost anything. So him doing fantasy here, his take on fantasy is real grounded. There's almost no optical effects in this movie. Yeah. What do you think of the villainous performances by John Wood and also uh, as the bishop who is the head baddie? And then, of course, his his feral, monstrous barbarian sidekick as played by Alfred Molina. John Wood, there's we talked about him a little bit in um, War Games and what an interesting presence he is at the end of that film. I think he's really fascinating here when they play the reality of. I put a curse on these people and I'm supposed to be the face of God and I'm corrupt and I know it and I know I'm a phony and it's awful. I like some of that. I think they they let him play some of that. And that's why I'm conflicted about this. There's stuff. It's one of those movies. I wish I'd been in the development meeting where I could just say, can we cut this? Can we move this here? Can we emphasize this? Can we write this role bigger? Can we? Because, God, it's 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 just the focus is wrong. This is early in Michelle Pfeiffer. This is when she is before she had truly broken out as a megastar. This was about 12 hours before she became a megastar, right? Scarface was the signature. Like Scarface was what had really burnt her into people's memory by this point. Now, that was not the original choice and how she was going to play it. And then it was no, no, plays as an ice queen and that'll work. And I think Michelle Pfeiffer projects this exterior that is tough. I like the fact that this movie lets her reclaim something softer and something she's really vulnerable and and lovely in this. And the stuff with Matthew Broderick falling in love with her because he can't help himself. Of course he's going to. And Robert can't even be upset about it. It's like, yeah, of course you are, man. I get it. And that leads to a, it's a fun sequence where he only tries to guilt Matthew Broderick because he's in love with his girlfriend. The Rucker Hauer, who I always think is an underrated actor. I truly do. That's why I wish he was the lead, because you and I both feel this way. He is so romantic and so real and so touching at moments in this movie. And that's what makes Rutger so wonderful is the fact that Rutger is unafraid of vulnerability and femininity. And as this European actor, if you see his early Verhoeven work, he's got no fear. He doesn't give a shit what you think. He'll do anything. You're right. And you know who Rutger Hauer is? He was the first generation Viggo Mortensen. And the most interesting thing is, like Viggo Mortensen, Rucker Hauer could be relied on to be hired at the last minute when an actor would leave during rehearsals for some reason. I don't know why Kurt Russell left this movie. I can see the Kurt Russell, Michelle Pfeiffer thing. I think they're great together in the few moments that they do appear together in films. They, they have a really interesting chemistry as well. But Rutger rarely gets to play something like this. And when he does, you realize how wonderful he is and how much he brings to it. That's my biggest problem is... The stuff I love in this, I really do love. And I, I think there's there's a lot about it that I would recommend. Um, none of it would be wrapped in the score, because holy God. Why does this score not work in this particular movie? Well, it's... It, it, you know, later on, there was whatever that that uh, band was that had the hit where it was the Gregorian chants and the disco beat. The boom, 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 boom. Yeah, Enigma was a big hit later on. I get it. 
I think Enigma is what they're trying to do with the score in this film. I think Richard Donner thought Alan Parsons was doing like Vangelis or Tangerine Dream. I think that's what he thought. And he said that it was because he listened to this shit while he was doing location scouting. And dude, somebody should have taken his Walkman away from him. Prog rock does not work with this. I don't think it's a particularly good score, and I think it's a distracting score more often than not, which is a real problem. I Here's the thing. I People who are really into film music, people who actually listen to film music separated from film and who pay attention to how it works in the film and stuff like that, you have to understand we're the weirdos. Most people, when they watch movies, barely registered what the music is doing. It just works on them. Music is almost subconscious to a lot of audiences. If somebody brings up Lady Hawk, inevitably that score is going to come up within 30 seconds. And I think I think that was your point. <laughs> well, and the problem is that in this case, it just sticks. It's just a thumb in the ear in this case, no matter what. It, it, the, the music and the film rarely seem related. I don't even care if I don't like the music. Frequently, it doesn't feel to me like the music fits what I'm looking at. And that is the biggest disconnect for me. It just doesn't work as a score. And it's a case where I would love to see the experiment of somebody taking this, doing a more traditional take on a score and letting me see if the movie plays to me in a different way. I like the film, and there are certain moments during the film where the score makes me go, ugh. And here's the other thing. I don't want to sound like I'm saying that you can only score fantasy films one way or score period films one way. One of the things that I think is bizarre is that we've all agreed that certain eras on film sound a certain way when, really? Because I'm guessing that most film scores are done with modern instrumentation and most period films it, what you're hearing would not be appropriate to the period, but that's fine. We we bought into it. All I'm saying is that in this case, I, this one has always just laid flat for me. And it's unfortunate, man. I think it's a real case of hobbling a good movie. It was shot entirely in Italy and it is gorgeous to look at. I've always said that Richard Donner, you know, most people know him from Superman and Lethal Weapon, but even his when he's in between his franchise movies, man, Few people do action or adventure or suspense like Richard Donner. I love the guy. I love Richard Donner's fondness for widescreen. God bless you, Richard Donner. You get it. And for a guy who used to direct Gilligan's Island, he uses scope pretty goddamn well. He knows what he's doing. So. I did not know that. Richard Donner has been one of my favorite directors since I'm 15 years old, and I did not know he directed Gilligan's Island episode. Oh, hell yes, he did. And I will say this about Lady Hawk. The tone the attitude of the characters, I think it never gets too nasty, and it has a good ending. If you're into the movie, you will enjoy the ending. Yeah, you earn, you, you do, you earn a lot from a good ending, and this fairy tale has a satisfying conclusion. And that is the conclusion of this particular episode. I would like to thank each and every person out there who is listening to our show. If you would like double the episodes, please go to patreon.com slash 80s all over. And there you will find commentaries and interviews and all kinds of goofy minutia. That should be the name for our bonus episodes, Drew, goofy minutia. And we want to thank every person out there who leaves us a review. We are grateful for every positive note and compliment and piece of constructive criticism. Thank you. Hey, Next time, it's one of our biggest episodes ever with over 25 films, and we've got so much ground to cover. 
I'm not sure we're going to have time for anything besides Jim Cotta, but we are going to try to squeeze in at least a little conversation about the claymation Mark Twain film or the Mario Van Peebles rap movie or the cave girl titty comedy or the only good Chuck Norris movie ever made or the weird Western comedies, plural, or maybe a James Bond, a Rambo or a Fletch film. You see what I mean? So much stuff. And Jim Cotta in May of 1985. (laughs) 